Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's warning that we should take Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine seriously, and that, quote, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Ukraine's President Zelensky fears Putin is preparing the Russian people for the use of nuclear weapons and blowing up his signature bridge on Putin's birthday is likely to push him further in that direction. Joining us is Francesca Giovannini, the Executive Director of the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs. She also teaches at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and previously served as Strategy and Policy Officer to the Executive Secretary of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization based in Vienna, and also worked as a consultant for the United Nations Crisis Prevention and Recovery Network, drafting regional and national strategies to set up political violence early warning systems in the Levant and in the South Pacific. Then we'll examine the folly of trying to run the world's greatest economy through the Fed, and how we can build a fair and secure middle-class society and speak with James Galbraith, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Jr. Chair in Government Business Relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. In the 1970s, he drafted the monetary policy oversight provisions of the original version of the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The Broken U.S. Economy Breeds Inequality and Insecurity. Here's how to fix it. Then finally, with women in America leading the fight to stop Trump and the GOP he dominates from ending American democracy, while at the same time young women in Iran are risking their lives fighting for democracy against a regime that oppresses women in the name of religion, we will speak with Dahlia Lithwick, the senior legal correspondent at Slate, She is a news and politics analyst at MSNBC and the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law. And her latest book just out is Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. We'll discuss her latest article at Slate, What Three Dissenters Can Do Now. Jackson, Kagan and Sotomayor are perfectly aware of their situation. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Francesca Giovannini, who is the Executive Director of the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard's Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. She also teaches at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and previously served as Strategy and Policy Officer to the Executive Secretary of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization based in Vienna. And she's also worked as a consultant for the United Nations Crisis Prevention and Recovery Network, drafting regional and national strategies to set up 
political violence, early warning systems in the Levant and in the South Pacific. Welcome to Background Briefing, Francesca Giovannini. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Francesca. And on Thursday evening at a fundraiser in Manhattan, President Biden said, the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. I'm trying to figure out what is Russian President Vladimir Putin's off-ramp. Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not lose face but lose significant power within Russia? We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuba Missile Crisis, and Putin is not joking when he talks about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. So, Francesca, that just sends chills down my spine. I mean, this is a serious situation we're in, is it not? Absolutely. Uh, it is a, a situation that I have to say is uh, terrifying uh, for many reasons. And it is uh, incredible that 60 years after the Cuba Missile Crisis, we are now in a situation that could be potentially even worse and more unpredictable than the Cuba Missile Crisis ever was. We have two uh, related issues uh, in Ukraine and beyond. We have a problem of nuclear coercion, or uh, better said, the incentives that President Putin might have at some point to launch a tactical nuclear weapon, a low-yield nuclear weapon over Ukraine to force the complete surrender of the country. But we also have a interdependent risk with the total collapse of nuclear deterrence. Uh, if President Putin uh, was to use a tactical nuclear weapon, of course, the United States, NATO, and we would expect also the international community would have to respond. But, you know, that response, even if it remains non-nuclear, will or might end up escalating into a nuclear war uh, among major great powers. So the two scenarios, in my view, lead us down a very risky road in a road where we have very little de-escalation uh, tools and uh, a very, very few off-ramps strategies, as you call them. Well, it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin is using the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, MAD, that operated during the Cold War between the US and uh, the Soviet Union. He's using it as a shield behind which he's conducting a conventional war in Ukraine with impunity while making nuclear threats against NATO to weaken the US EU's resolve. This is a condition that you were first to identify, uh, Francesca, the concept of a predatory nuclear weapons state. And you wrote that recently, some experts have claimed that the Russian invasion, if successful in its scope, could set a dangerous precedent so as to embolden other nuclear armed states to launch military campaigns to conquer neighboring countries. The case of China over Taiwan is front and center in these specific discussions. In a scenario where nuclear armed states become increasingly predatory, non-nuclear weapon states could seek protection by joining existing nuclear alliances. So this is what you're suggesting and you, when you're talking about the breakdown of nuclear deterrence. Absolutely. So 
I, you know, a few scholars have referred to this Ukraine war as the beginning of a land grabbing age, but I called it actually the beginning or the the renewal of predatory nuclear weapon states. So exactly as you said, Ian, the uh, will to use nuclear weapons as a shield to impose will to grab uh, territory and fundamentally to defy uh, sovereignty. I think there are some serious breakdowns when it comes to, of course, international law, international system. And we also have somehow to consider that there is fundamentally no protection that can be given to non-nuclear weapon states at this point that are not under a nuclear umbrella or they don't have nuclear weapons themselves. So the Ukraine war to me opens gigantic dilemmas, especially for countries that might at some point want to consider proliferation. Now, if you are Iran right now, or if you are North Korea, in case of the North Koreans, of course, they will never consider denuclearization, considering what happened to Ukraine, who actually ended up giving up its nuclear arsenal and then now being subjected to a territorial devastation. But if you are if you are Iran, would you consider now halting your program in exchange for security guarantees that fundamentally can be violated at any given point? I consider this age incredibly dangerous because the Ukraine war can set a very, very, very risky precedence. Let me also say, Ian, that this Ukraine war has literally turned nuclear deterrence theory on its head. When we thought about nuclear deterrence, the idea was uh, nuclear weapons prevent major great powers wars and they serve as the ultimate defensive mechanism. But we have not thought very well about nuclear weapons as a coercive mechanism. So what do you do when you use nuclear weapons to achieve land? So how do you protect these countries from nuclear coercion? So it goes beyond nuclear deterrence. It opens a new kind of problem that we have not thought very carefully on. So in other words, the idea that nuclear weapons kept the peace has been turned on its head and that we have a, a situation that some people describe as a stability-instability paradox. Yes, I think there is some of it. So we do know, and we've always known, quite frankly, that in case of a, a great power competition or even an escalation, great powers would have engaged only at the level of conventional uh, capabilities and conventional war because nuclear weapons would have ultimately prevented the, the, the large escalation to nuclear weapons and nuclear war that nuclear deterrence is trying somehow to prevent. But the I think the paradox today is that this these nuclear weapons can actually infuse even more instability into the system, not so much because they can't prevent the great powers competition. I think nuclear deterrence in Ukraine is still holding. NATO and the Russians are still trying to prevent an escalation between one another. But by giving the power to nuclear weapon states to destabilize their regions, to act as predatory states, we ultimately increase the likelihood of a conventional war and ultimately also a nuclear war. And let's also remember the nuclear deterrence is not a conflict management mechanism. This is not a political instrument. At some point, if nuclear deterrence continue to be strained, at some point it fails, inevitably fails. So what comes after the failure of nuclear deterrence? The, the risks are incredibly high. Well, the risk is the end of the world, right? Or the end of the world as we know it. The risk is, uh, uh, I see two possible scenarios. And outside of what might 
you know, happen if Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon. What you already have seen, unfortunately, is what I would call the normalization of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, and this actually started, by the way, before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Even if you think about how President Trump used the nuclear rhetoric against North Korea, this idea of my my button is bigger than your button and fire and fury. So we've started talking about nuclear weapons as if they simply were larger conventional weapons. And we have, in my view, lost sight that these weapons are weapons of mass destruction. They are created with the purpose of inflicting large and unacceptable human cost. If we start considering nuclear weapons simply as another tool in the toolbox of the military, then we enter really in a situation of complete anarchy, where the world might actually be facing multiple countries that decide that it's not a big deal to use tactical nuclear weapons against their enemies. And so, of course, you go into a situation that becomes completely unacceptable and unmanageable in terms of human costs, but also in terms of environmental cost. One last point on this. Let's remember that one of the biggest differences between conventional weapons and weapons of mass destruction is because of the release of chemical, biological or radioactive elements in the environment. We are not talking enough, in my view, about the environmental damages that might result from a catastrophic use of a simple low-yield nuclear weapons. Well, when President Biden on Thursday night at the political fundraiser in Manhattan said uh, Putin is not joking when he talks about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. I mean, there have been analogies made between Putin and, and Hitler in the sense that Hitler, when he was in his bunker, he didn't listen to his generals and he micromanaged the military, and that's apparently what Putin is doing as well. But Hitler never crossed that line to use biological or chemical weapons, did he? That is that is a very important and very interesting point here. And, you know, when I came out uh, with my very first article about hurting stalemate and nuclear risks in Ukraine, uh, where I was uh, hypothesizing the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons, you know, a few of my colleagues told me, well, look, you know, the United, the United States lost in Iraq or in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan, and none of these countries used nuclear weapons. So it is thinkable that a great power accepts military defeat uh, instead of crossing the nuclear taboo. But for me, the Ukraine war is a very different beast. The Russian Federation, the present President Putin have said very clearly that Ukraine is indispensable for the identity of Russia. None of the countries the great powers have lost actually had that same role. The United States, uh, you know, intervened in Afghanistan for self-defense after 9-11. They invaded Iraq based on this pretext of uh, weapons of mass destruction. But neither, in the, neither of those cases define American identity or American culture in a way instead, in a way that Ukraine does for Russian Federation. So... How much would Putin accept the reputational cost, the political cost that might result from losing Ukraine? I think this is not only a question of losing militarily. I think it goes way beyond that. And so it is a situation where, in my view, this becomes a conflict that he cannot lose. Uh, 
That was the hypothesis I made about tactical nuclear weapons. And let me also say, Ian, I envisage the use of the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons, not because of military uh, balance of power. Now, you know, the Russians have been really weak conventionally. Yes, they could have, you know, some use for tactical nuclear weapons. But to me, the use of tactical nuclear weapon would be ultimately a political message. I am going to use tactical nuclear weapons until and unless you completely surrender. So it is a political message. For me, the Ukraine case is different from any other conflict where other nuclear weapon states have lost. Well, going back to what President Biden said on at the fundraiser on Thursday evening, he's trying to figure out where Putin has an off-ramp. Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not only lose face but lose significant power within Russia? Apparently there's already the intelligence services are suggesting that there's been some dissent within the inner circles inside the Kremlin. It's very hard to understand uh, what's going on there. It's even, I think, more opaque than it was during the Cold War. But Putin is not being pressured by peaceniks on the left. He's being pressured by nationalists and war hawks on the right. And if you watch Russian state TV, it's just full of the most bloodthirsty, you know, this woman from the head of RT is going on TV saying, Russian men, have you no balls? You know, this kind of talk is scary as hell. And that's the pressure that Putin's under, isn't it, from nationalists and hawks? You're absolutely right. And uh, I think more than, uh, you know, the battle on the field, I think now Putin has to reckon with two major forces domestically that, in my view, equally pose a threat. Although I think the right wing, the, you know, hyper-nationalist uh, movement, I think is way more dangerous. There is certainly the right wing that now, uh, you know, might start to perceive him as too moderate and too cautious. And to be honest, if you think about how also uh, the American uh, troops and the military was also su subjected to similar criticism, if you think about it in the case of Afghanistan, where, you know, uh, some some uh, radicals, you know, on the, especially on the right side, thought the Americans weren't fighting, you know, vigorously enough to win the war. I think Putin is confronting even much worse forces domestically. But there is another force also that he has unleashed recently that we don't know how this is going to play out, to be honest. So with this partial mobilization, fundamentally, Putin has brought war home. You know, at the very beginning, the war was fought by professionalists, by, you know, uh, you know, voluntary troops. And now he has forced families to give up, you know, uh, the life of their sons and fathers and, uh, you know, cousins and uncles. And that brings a political cost home. And that, in a way, also somehow heightened the need for Putin to justify this war and to accelerate the end of the war, which then makes it even more dangerous. So I think the domestic factors, in my view, will impact enormously in his decision. And there is only one way in which he can accelerate the end of the conflict if he further escalates. Now, if you can't escalate on the conventional level, the only option you have is the nuclear option. Well, there was a report recently in the British press that there was a movement of a nuclear-dedicated train carrying nuclear weapons towards Ukraine. The Pentagon on Thursday said they have no such information. So I assume that U.S. intelligence overheads are looking for any signs. But what do you think, just in the last couple of minutes here, Francesca, what should 
President Biden do? Should he go public like Jack Kennedy did during the Cuba crisis and alert the world to the dangers posed by, by Putin? Or do you think quiet diplomacy? I mean, presumably they're talking to the Chinese and asking Xi Jinping to help them out. I'm not sure that Putin listens to anybody. But do you have any suggestions here just in the last minute? Because we don't want to leave our audience in a total state of despair. I think there is there is a, a much bigger role that can play by other powers that, in my view, we have not actually solicited. Uh, for me, an immense role can be played by India, to be honest. I'm not sure the Chinese would want to be involved, especially because of the political situation China is at the moment with the 20th uh, you know, uh, Congress uh, of the Communist Party. But I think India has been vocal. I think India has an enormous traction among the Global South uh, countries, has also been a very important important intermediary. In many other, uh, you know, diplomatic initiatives, India was and has been a founding father of nuclear disarmament initiatives around the world. So I think India can really play a major role. Now, I expect India to play a low-key role. Uh, India is still, you know, the, the president of the G20, so it does have an interest in somehow fostering some negotiation. And I would actually recommend the U.S. and India to think about how to bring, again, maybe, you know, off the record, some initial discussions uh, uh, to begin, especially on the military, military situation, so that we make sure that we don't escalate or misperceive actions from the Russian side that might lead to further escalation. So I think India more than China can help us really in trying to move forward towards a peaceful resolution. Well, Francesca Giovannini, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Francesca Giovannini, who's Executive Director of the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs. She also teaches at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and previously served as Strategy and Policy Officer to the Executive Secretary of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization based in Vienna. And she also worked as a consultant for the United Nations Crisis Prevention and Recovery Network, drafting regional and national strategies to set up political violence early warning systems in the Levant and in the South Pacific. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the folly of trying to run the world's largest economy through the Fed and how we can build a fair and secure middle class society. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Galbraith, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Government Business Relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. In the 1970s, he drafted the monetary policy oversight provisions of the original version of the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act, and he has an article at The Guardian, The Broken U.S. Economy Breeds Inequality and Insecurity. Here's how to fix it. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Galbraith. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Labor Department reported on Friday that U.S. uh, employers added 263,000 jobs. That's a slight 
dropped from August 315,000. Unemployment rate now is at 3.5%, a half-century low. But Wall Street thinks that's a bad idea, and so does the Fed. I mean, uh, the stock tumbled 2%, and the Dow closed down. So what is this disconnect? Why is having... Well, there's no, there's no, there's no disconnect there. Uh, Wall, Wall Street uh, is reacting to what it expects the Federal Reserve to do, and what it expects the Federal Reserve to do is to continue raising interest rates, which will tend to depress stock prices. So there's no... There's nothing mysterious about that. They, they, uh, they, apparently, the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve takes the unemployment rate as an indicator of, of, of what it should do. It would like a higher one. Uh, so uh, there's no there's no inconsistency here. It's it, there's a it's basic tension in, between interests and the economy. But you know the idea of throwing more people out of work, creating more poverty and homelessness is what I'm puzzled by, and you pointed out, it's, this is all about the folly of trying to run the world's largest economy through a central bank. So ex- elaborate on that, if you will. Well, and, and again, the, the, the reaction you, you, you referred to in the stock market is simply an anticipation of what the Federal Reserve will do. Uh, it reflects the correct understanding that uh, you know, asset managers have that the main policy that is in play here is the interest rate. Well, the interest rate's a very blunt instrument. It's a very crude instrument. Uh, it, and if it con- continues to be uh, pushed the way the Fed is pushing it, it will lead ultimately uh, to a, you know, to a, to a, a, a serious economic decline. It does, that's not necessarily something's going to happen very soon. Uh, and, this is an important point because many people say the interest rates going up, the economy is going to collapse. I don't think that's necessarily true. But as they continue to use this one tool uh, to uh, deal with a whole array of, of problems, they're, they're certainly going to, that's certainly the outcome that you're looking at down the road. So let's talk about your article at The Guardian, The Broken U.S. Economy Breach Inequality and Insecurity, and here's how to fix it. And you argue that today in the United States, we find islands of wealth and power on one side and an ocean of precarity and powerlessness alongside poverty on the other. And that in the 1930s to the 1970s, America had a middle-class economy centered on the heartland, and now it has an economy centered on finance and technology, which does not create a lot of jobs. And that the income and wealth gains in America have become highly concentrated in a very few specific places, sectors, and people. So we had something of a social democracy, arguably, from about 1944 to 1977, but then when Reagan came along, we used to have a savings economy, and then we have a credit-based economy, and since then it seems that our economy no longer served the middle class as it used to, but it in effect created an oligarchy. Is that it in, in a nutshell? Well, essentially, yes, but I want to point to the structural change, uh, which you alluded to in part there, that the middle class, as we understood it uh, in, you know, between the 40s and the 70s, uh, was essentially a, uh, a manufacturing middle class. Uh, 1945, 30% of the workforce roughly was in manufacturing, about the same proportion was, was, in, uh, was unionized. 
uh, and those were jobs which basically a single income supported a household, and that was the foundation of a of a um, of a middle class society. Well, we 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 still have. I don't want to be unclear here. We still have a middle class, but it is now a, a middle class where practically everybody of age in a household has to be working in order to maintain a middle class standard of living. The jobs are not in manufacturing. They are not stable. And there is a, a, a great deal of, of, of uncertainty about the future. People don't have the employer pension plans that, 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 they, that they used to be able to rely on. All these kinds of pillars of middle class stability have been weakened. Uh, they weren't completely destroyed in the, in the Reagan and post-Reagan eras, but they've been gradually weakened and they get weaker still as we lose that this, uh, core middle class, largely manufacturing and technical type jobs. Uh, that were at one point the foundation of uh, American prosperity and also of American power. So we're in a situation which is precarious for a large part of the population, but also intrinsically unstable. And what are we doing about it? Well, we're asking the Federal Reserve to manage it with the interest rate. This is not a strategy that's going to work. So let's talk about how to fix it. Let me quickly go through the points in your article at The Guardian. James Galbraith, the broken U.S. economy breeds inequality and insecurity. Here's how to fix it. Expand social insurance. Raise the minimum wage. Implement a job guarantee. Stabilize energy prices and supplies. Build public services infrastructure and fight climate change. Shift taxation towards land rent and reform banking before it's too late. So let's just quickly go through them. You're advocating Medicare for all and to drop the age of eligibility to 55. Well, those are alternatives, but yes, if you can't get Medicare for all, dropping the age to 55 is a fairly straightforward reform, which would cover a large part of the population that has, uh, you know, developing health problems. So it would be good for uh, good for the, the middle class, but also it would make life easier for employers who would be providing insurance only for a younger and healthier part of their of their workforce. And raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour would provide... That would complete, that would complete a, ta- a process which is already underway. As you know, it's already at that level in New York and California. Uh, and bringing it up in the rest of the country would, would essentially give a large part of the service sector, maybe 20, 20 to 30 percent of American workers, a, a raise... Uh, which would help uh, restore their living standards and the stability of uh, of their of their economic lives. And the federal job guarantee. The federal jobs guarantee is a way of ensuring that people can always find work when they need it. Uh, that, that would be at a you know a low living wage. I mean, and the fifteen dollars standard is a reasonable one. And it would be to say that if you need work. Uh, you can find it. There will be there will be public or nonprofit agencies that are prepared to provide it, and that also makes it easier for employers to find workers because then people are, are they have they have jobs, they have supervisors, they have references. Uh, they're not sitting out unemployed with people asking, "What did you do for the last two or three years?" Uh, and becoming essentially uh, detached from the workforce. It's a very sensible reform, uh, which would I, I think. Uh, you know, solve a lot of social problems down the road. And stabilize energy prices and supplies. Why should oil and gas be run by private equity on a boom and bust basis? Here in California, we have gasoline now at about $7 a gallon because the cartel, the five oil companies that control the refining, 
they make more money by shutting down refineries than they do by producing the product. What a perversion of capitalism that is. Well, it's the way capitalism works, and particularly if you have a chokehold on it, on what is essentially what is an essential element in, in, in the people's standard of living in their daily lives. Uh, and something does need to be done about this. I mean, we need to face this problem and not say this is the result of some events that are happening in other parts of the world. This is the result of the way we, we, we have kept the energy sector in these hands uh, all along. I mean, particularly, it's been increasingly taken over by by private equity, by financial operators who who are really quite ruthless about about maximizing their their returns in the short run. Uh, we have public utilities in this country. This is not what this is not the way the Los Angeles public power works. It's not the way uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority works. Uh, we know how to do this in a better way, and we should be we should be thinking about extending that across all of the, the of the really core uh, energy infrastructures that we have. And obviously we need to cut military spending and sure. invest in we, we, quality of life as opposed to the yeah, redundancy sure. of death. But let, yeah. let's talk if we, about... If, if, if we want to have an advanced economy which is attractive for domestic investment, for foreign investment, which builds on the technologies of the future, we've got to take the technical resources we have and use them for that purpose. If we're using them to uh, to build military hardware that effectively has no real use in the modern world and only gets us in trouble in the when we try to deploy it. We're running on a model that, uh, that you know, people thought perhaps we could we could make work in the, from through the Cold War and even in the Cold, post-Cold War period, but it's clearly not a workable model for the long-term future of the American economy. So we have to think about how to redeploy those resources and start redeploying them. And that means cutting back on, on, on our foreign commitments uh, and making better use of, of the technical capacities that we, in fact, still have. And just in the last minute here, in terms of taxes, in the 1980s, you say taxes were shifted away from personal and corporate incomes and capital gains towards payrolls and sales. And its unsurprising sure. result is the rise of an oligarchy of hyper-wealthy persons. Uh, that should be clear to just about everybody, right? I, I think that is clear to everybody. And as I say in the piece of... Uh, the, one of the greatest economists, Adam Smith, uh, wrote that wealth, as Mr. Hobbes says, is power. We see this in the way in which the country is run, in which which the 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 influence of a very small number of extremely wealthy people has become paramount. Uh, the tax system exists to deal with that problem, both income taxes, but also I want to make the point that that a, a very effective and powerful estate and gift tax uh, has the effect of of, of persuading people. Uh, to uh, to donate their fortunes to get rid of them before the tax man takes them away, and this is a good way for a society which has a tendency to to generate large gains uh, to recycle them and, and 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 use them in the long run to build the society itself. We've been doing this you know, quite effectively actually over much of the past century. It was weakened greatly in the last twenty years or thirty years, and that should be restored as well. And you conclude with saying that what I propose is an alternative to pitchforks, anarchy, and civil war. I thank you for joining us here today, James Galbraith. Thank you very much. It's good to, be, good to talk to you. 
And again, I'm speaking with James Galbraith, who holds the Lloyd Benson Chair in Government Business Relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. In the 1970s, he drafted the monetary policy oversight provisions of the original version of the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Broken U.S. Economy Breeds Inequality and Insecurity. Here's how to fix it. We can take a brief station break and back looking at how women in America are leading the fight to stop Trump and the GOP he dominates from ending American democracy, while at the same time young women in Iran are risking their lives fighting for democracy against a regime that oppresses women in the name of religion. Hey country, you didn't say what you meant, you just changed a brand new funky president. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dahlia Lithwick, who's a senior legal correspondent at Slate, a news and political analyst at MSNBC, and the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Commentary, among others. And her latest book, Just Out, is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. And her latest article at Slate is What Three Dissenters Can Do Now. Jackson, Kagan, and Sotomayor are perfectly aware of their situation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you, Ian, for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, I want to talk to you about both your book and your recent article on the three women now on the Supreme Court who are the three minority against the six majority. And one, of course, is Jewish, one's African-American, and one is Latina. But let's begin with this spontaneous manifestation of massive protest of women across the country and around the world uh, just after Donald Trump's inauguration. And at the time, it was just stunning to watch. It was spontaneous. It was as though there was an intuition amongst millions of, of Americans, women across the country and around the world, that something bad had just happened and it was going to get worse. And obviously, Donald Trump is possibly the worst example of the male species you could find. I think you'd have to scour this country to find a human being worse than him. So what happened there to that enormous manifestation of political energy? And can it be recreated and become a political movement? Because, Or maybe it has. So let's start there. I love the question because I think in some sense I wanted the book to be the thing that was the follow-on to that. Uh, and in some sense, the thing that is the follow-on to what we're seeing in Iran right now, where you have that same unbelievable mobilization of women, you know, uh, burning their headscarves, cutting their hair, sort of doing exactly what you're describing, which is going onto the streets and saying, I don't agree that clerics can decide modesty for me. I don't agree that my body is not my own. And I wanted the book to be a way in some sense of lashing women and the law and democracy 
to women and mere protest. And it's not to in any way say that protest is not a lot or not enough, but it is to say we actually have so many other tools in our toolkits. And this is, I think, where women in the United States really are different from women in Iran, that it matters that women are lawyers and that they're judges and that they are elected officials and that they are state Supreme Court justices, because it means that you can go beyond just putting your body on the street. You can actually seize real power. And so I think what I want to say is what we saw happen in Kansas after Dobbs, where women, you know, organized and they beat back uh, a really revanchist uh, assertion about women uh, after Roe v. Wade, or women in Michigan who gathered and got signatures on a petition to codify into Michigan constitutional law, uh, not just abortion rights, but the right to birth control, what we're seeing in Alaska, what we're seeing in the special election in New York, is in some sense taking what was extraordinary about the Women's March of 2017 and connecting it to meaningful, enduring democratic and legal power and change. So I think I want to say that was extraordinary and this is even better. But there was a sort of intuition there that I find interesting and, uh, and it relates to what's happening in Iran, because the, the Iranian women, and we're talking about young girls, uh, junior high, high school girls now, defying the religious police who use piety as a weapon of oppression to keep these kleptocratic clerics, which is a sort of an oligarchy in robes, in power. The people in Iran get it, but it felt like in this country that the women in this country were the first to get what Trump is, and he's not that different from, he just doesn't wear clerical robes, but he's a kleptocrat and a swindler and a con man and a misogynist. And it seems like that's another thing that uh, the women in this country and the women in Iran have in common. They get think, who, who they're up against. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I contend in the book, and, you know, it doesn't account for the millions of women, particularly white women, who still love Donald Trump and who will follow him, you know, to the battlements and beyond, follow him into January 6th and beyond. But I do think that what you're identifying is something that I tried to capture in the book, which is that women live on this complicated theme between seeing the law and the legal system as a mechanism to lift them up and give them power, right? Give them rights, give them the vote, give them something close to parity and pay and in access to law school and all of the ways in which the law has been the engine of equality. And that in a heartbeat, the law can turn on a dime and start to be used, as you're saying in Iran, you know, to, to, not just penalize women for not being quote unquote modest, according to the modesty police, but to put them in jail, to harm their bodies in some cases, uh, to, to end their lives. And so I wanted to probe this very, very deep, what I think of as muscle memory, that for women in this country who may have taken for granted that we got credit cards in the 70s, right? We got the right to birth control in the 60s, that we got equality and access to, you know, practicing law and law school. Uh, all of those things have come. And all of that is a testament to what uh, the rule of law can give you and what democracy and equality can give you. But that exactly as you're saying, you know, when crowds were chanting, lock her up 
at Donald Trump rallies in 2016. And that was supposed to be a metaphor about Hillary Clinton, right? She's She should go to jail for some unspecified email-related crime. And that lock her up becomes the chant directed at Nancy Pelosi. And it's the chant that is directed at AOC. And it is the chant that is directed at Christine Blasey Ford, who dared testify against a powerful man. It's not a metaphor anymore because now we are looking after the fall of Roe v. Wade at women around the country who are being held in jail in Oklahoma, in Alabama, in Texas, charged and held for endangering their fetus, charged and held for miscarriages that seem to the state uh, to have been abortions. So I want to draw that line between lock her up as a kind of metaphor to lock her up as the reality for women who, uh, you know, terminate a pregnancy for any number of reasons or who are deemed to be unfit mothers, because I think that that is a thing that is deep, deep, deep in the collective memory of women who know that the law is both an instrument of our freedom and also an instrument of our oppression, and that that is a very, very clear and coherent memory for women who didn't want to wait around for Donald Trump to put women in jail for abortion, who didn't want to wait around for Dobbs to be overturned because they saw it coming a long time ago. But is that to say, Dahlia Lithwick, that the Taliban, the clerics in Iran and their morality police and the IRGC and the Basiji, and the white, largely white American conservative men who want, who have pushed through, particularly on this reactionary Supreme Court, the Dobbs decision. What do they have in common? What it seems to me, and I, I may be indulging in amateur psychiatrics here, but it seems to me they, at the end of the day, there's a fear of women's sexuality. What's the explanation for this need? to closet, to control, and to dominate women, and to dominate their sex lives? I think that is the hardest question, and in some sense it's the easiest question, because I think in some ways the answer in both uh, the case of the conservative clerics in Iran and uh, the conservative wing of the Supreme Court in the United States is that it is rooted in deeply religious notions of, as you say, women as somehow fearful, women as needing control, women as being simultaneously, you know, temptresses and uh, overgrown children who need to be monitored and uh, suppressed. I mean, these are ideas that pop into, even into Justice Alito's uh, analysis in Dobbs, uh, you know, ideas about uh, women as being not really fully realized autonomous individuals the minute uh, there's a fertilized egg in their body and that their all of their rights and freedoms, all of their autonomous decision making uh, can be subordinated to the state's claims about, you know, what what Justice Alito keeps talking about is, you know, fetal life and and the idea that they become vessels in a way. And so I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we cannot say that the U.S. Supreme Court are a bunch of clerics in robes. But I think that there is an animating ideology about women as not quite to be trusted, uh, as not quite capable of making decisions in their own best interest or women who lose 
all of their decision-making power and freedom the minute uh, they can be subject to the controls of the state. By the way, this doesn't stop at abortion. These are the same conversations we're hearing play out about birth control. This is a conversation we're hearing uh, play out about uh, you know, women uh, who miscarry and the state wants to investigate whether they have done something uh, to uh, end a pregnancy unlawfully. So I think it's really a long, long line. And it goes back in, in, in this country to the founding of religiously inflected ideas about women, first and foremost, as bearers of children, uh, and second, once they become eligible to bear children, they become children themselves and therefore subject to the state's regulations. And I think that we can't really do a good job of talking about the Dobbs decision without rooting it both in a theological view of women and also, as Justice Alito is happy to say, a history of you know text and tradition and longstanding ideas about women that go back to a time when women didn't have the power to vote or have any say in the founding document. And uh, the minute that the women get pregnant, uh, their rights disappear and those rights go to the fetus. Oh, that's exactly right. And that's really, I think, uh, an important piece of why you are seeing around the country, again, in ruby red states like Kansas, uh, in Alaska, in Oklahoma, if the data is bearing out, a huge uptick in women, you know, registering to vote, becoming engaged with politics. Because I think that until we had the decision in Dobbs at the end of June, overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey, I think that there was a deeply ingrained belief that it could not possibly happen here, that women had crossed some line into which Nothing that we saw before Roe v. Wade, you know, whether it was criminalizing medicine and putting doctors in jail for doing life-saving interventions with pregnant women or, or the, uh, a legal regime that really did, I think, treat women as though they were essentially children for purposes of their own bodily autonomy. And the minute Dobbs came down, it was so interesting to see the reaction around the country from people who did not believe under any set of facts that that could happen. And as you're saying, I think those are the women. And by the way, an awful lot of men, a lot of fathers and husbands who have lived through a miscarriage, who have lived through a non-viable pregnancy that had to end with a DNC, or simply who have daughters who right now in Arizona cannot get methotrexate, a pain medicine, because it has an ancillary knock-on effect of ending pregnancies and watching your own daughter suffer unable to get medication that has nothing to do with uh, anything other than controlling women in their bodies. And so I think whether it materializes as you know a huge uh, 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 uptick in voting uh, in the midterms, I don't know. I'm not uh, uh, going to prognosticate, but I am going to say for an awful lot of people to understand finally and very, very viscerally that your body is not your own when you reach reproductive age and that the government now has a stake in both controlling it and punishing it if you make choices that the state doesn't like. I think nobody thought we would be here in 2022. So in the last few minutes, let's just touch on your new book, Dahlia Lithwick, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. 
in which you profile women like uh, Sally Yates, Stacey Abrams, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, also Bridget O'Meary, the Deputy Director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, who in 2017 defended abortion rights on behalf of uh, immigrant minors in detention, and Rebecca Heller, the human rights attorney who organised lawyers at the airports to fight the Muslim bans, and Robbie Kaplan, who took on the Charlottesville Nazis. In the case, though, just because the time constraints, let's just talk about uh, Becca Heller, who's a young Yale Law School graduate, who just spontaneously just went out and organised lawyers to show up at the airports when Trump instituted his uh, Muslim bans and, and people were arriving at the airports, and we all saw the video of it. I mean, the thing that she told you, which I just find so interesting, is she said that, I mean, to me, getting a law degree is about using the master's tool to destroy the master's house. So elaborate on that exchange, if you will. I mean, I think in some sense, you know, it's, it's, look, this is a, a quote from the amazing Audre Lorde, and it's, you know, a, a famous way of thinking about almost exactly that problem you started with, Ian, which is what do you do when the law is both the instrument of holding you back and the instrument of freedom? And one of the through lines in the book is that many of the women I interviewed land in a really different place. So you're right, Becca Heller, in some sense, is an extreme version of someone who doesn't have a lot of confidence in the legal system, who thinks that it is basically always overdetermined to be racist and sexist and, you know, uh, to uh, make life difficult for criminal defendants and easy for wealthy white men. She doesn't have a lot of hope that that's going to change. But as she says, again, um, you know, quoting this famous Audre Lorde uh, uh, line, I will nevertheless use the law if I can use it to effectuate justice. And in some sense, she is in conversation with other women in the book, like Sally Yates, who is an institutionalist to the point that, you know, you cannot believe the reverence she has for the rule of law, or even someone like Anita Hill, who also says, look, you know, the law is the only thing standing between women and a life of chaos and abuse and violence. So even if it is rife with misogyny and racism and all the things that are built into a legal system uh, that goes back to a time when women weren't fully people and blacks weren't fully people, we still have to put all our hope in it because there's nothing else. And so I love Becca Heller because I think she gives voice to the counter theory of that, which is, it's not great, not clear it's getting better, but I'm going to use it if I can help refugees who are stranded at airports under the travel ban. And I wanted readers to get a sense of the whole panoply of answers to this question of why you put your faith in a mechanism that hasn't historically been really great for women and vulnerable minorities. And Becca Heller's answer is, I put my faith in it because I'm really good at it and I managed to use it to make change. And I love that as an answer because I think it's brutally honest. It's probably not where I land, but it is very much, I think, where a lot of people, particularly younger people, are landing today. So just in closing, Dahlia Lithwick, let's just briefly touch on your latest article at Slate, what three dissenters can do now. Jackson, Kagan and Sotomayor are perfectly aware of their situation. It's not as if for the longest time now with this Roberts Court, 
the dissent has been eloquent and brilliant, but painful in the sense that it's, it's the dissent. And on the other side, the majority side, with these six ultra-conservatives, all chosen, almost all chosen, I might add, by one man, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who Senator Whitehouse is, seems to be alone in trying to point out this outrageous capture of the courts, not just by religious conservatives, but also by plutocrats in the sense that the getting these people on the courts was all financed through dark money run by Leonard Leo, and now he's got $1.6 billion from just one donor to change this upcoming election. And Senator Whitehouse argues that the plutocrats have found a perfect instrument of power through the Supreme Court because they could never get their ideas through the Congress or the executive branch because they're unpopular. But they found a way to institute unpopular laws to the benefit of uh, the oligarchs. So I wish there was more focus on that, but I'm, now I'm digressing. <laughs> so I've given you two questions to answer. Sorry. No, I mean, I think on the point, I don't think it's a digression at all. I think that Sheldon Whitehouse is doing yeoman's work, uh, trying to make the point that this is kind of bought and sold and that, you know, Leonard Leo, who's not just, by the way, worked very, very hard over the past decades to seat justices on the Supreme Court and on state Supreme Courts and on the federal bench, but is also actively working in groups that do election suppression, right? Groups that make sure that it's harder for for people to vote. And those two projects are connected to the thing you said. If you can't win at the ballot box, you have to find another way to win. And one of them is to buy the courts, to capture the courts, as Senator Whitehouse would say. The other is to make sure that your vote isn't counted. So I think on both those fronts, you're exactly right. This is an anti-democratic process. And maybe the answer on the dissents is, I think that dissents are and are always characterized as a sort of letter to the future, right? We look now at famous dissents in uh, landmark cases and we say, oh, right, right, right. That was wrong then. You know, I'm thinking of Korematsu, uh, uh, the internment of the Japanese Americans during World War II. And you read the dissents there and you say, right, right. Everyone should have known this then. We all know this to be true now. Justice Scalia, famous used to say, Justice Antonin Scalia would famously say, I write dissents for the law students, for the generation of law students who come up, who know that um, they're going to change the world. And I think that both Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, and now we're seeing Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who only uh, took the bench last Monday for the first Monday of October, all of them are writing their dissents in some ways and using their voice in arguments in dissent to talk to the rest of us, to say this six to three supermajority isn't forever, and I want to center what the law is and what uh, the Constitution is. And maybe I would close that by saying there was an amazing moment that we wrote about in that piece when the Alabama racial gerrymander was being uh, challenged under what's left of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, where the Solicitor General for uh, Alabama was making this claim that the Constitution is colorblind and, and the 14th Amendment is colorblind and the Voting Rights Act is colorblind and you cannot uh, create congressional districts or electoral districts 
on the basis of race. And in response to that, Justice Jackson on her second day on the bench reads this amazing set of reports from the drafting of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments in which she makes it painfully clear that of course the 14th Amendment was drafted to remediate remediate racial harms and to make sure that a long storied history of making it impossible for black voters to effectuate their desires had to be corrected with constitutional amendments. And so I think of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's voice in that case and what will probably be a dissenting voice when the decision comes down in Merrill as a love letter to the drafters of the 14th Amendment, to the Americans who feel that they are boxed out of the process of how uh, justice is being done at the court because of the capture you've described, and a love letter to young law students, particularly women and people of color who don't see themselves in Justice Sam Alito's sense of jurisprudence, even of text and history, but who could see themselves stepping into the future to make change. Well, Dalia Lithwick, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Dalia. And again, I've been speaking with Dalia Lithwick, who's a senior legal correspondent at Slate, a news and political analyst at MSNBC, and the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Commentary, among others. And her latest book just out is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. And her latest article at Slate is What Three Dissenters Can Do Now. Jackson, Kagan, and Sotomayor are perfectly aware of their situation. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.